Before I start, thank you for listening. This is the Ignition Podcast. Get ready to fuel your passion for cars and motorsport every Monday and Thursday. We bring you stories, valuable career tips and tricks that will help you navigate the automotive world. So don't miss out. Follow the Ignition Podcast now and join the drive towards becoming the number one automotive podcast worldwide. Let's embark on this thrilling journey together. Enjoy the episode. Being able to speak to amazing people and release their conversations every week is such a pleasure. And it means so much to me that people like you get to listen to this every week. And the fact that you're continuing to listen means even more. But I wanted to ask for a bit more support. I've started a Buy Me A Coffee. You can go onto the link down in the show notes below, click and donate as little or as much as you'd like. It would help me produce better content, keep the editing up, and just in general have better conversations so I can travel further and bring you better guests. If this sounds like something you'd like to help me with, the link will be in the show notes below. Again, thank you so much for listening. It's enough already. And so enjoy this episode. What does it take to win races and win them consistently? Most race teams would say world-class cars and world-class drivers. But behind those cars are people. And behind the people are brains. And if these aren't kept in world-class form, how can the drivers and the cars do the same? This is where people like today's guest, Jerry, come in. Jerry has been working as a performance coach for 21 plus years, and this includes talents like Jackie Stewart, David Coulthard, and Dario Franchitti. He has taken teams like McLaren, Mercedes, and most recently Cadillac, and turned those teams to maintain that world-class performance. But if you want to see how you can train your brain to compete at a world-class level, this is the perfect episode for you. I tell the sink or swim, so when I go into new opportunities, to be honest with you, I just I look at it with excitement rather than fear. What a race, and it's still not where it should be regarding human performance. Normally, I'm one of the last people to be drafted into the team, and that's because they think about the humans last, really. They think about the machine first. Having those visions, where do you want to go? Okay, I want to be a Formula One driver. Yeah, but what have you got to do to get there? But you kind of develop it, you ingrain it within them. You've only got a small window. When you're young, you don't realise we're only here for a visit. You know, at the end of the day, You've just got to maximise every bit of time you've got. There's loads to do still. There's so much to do. And I'm just waiting for somebody as well to have the courage to... Jerry, you've uh, coached one of the best minds in motorsport, but I'm interested in what ignited your passion for cars. Uh, well, actually, to be honest with you, an unusual background for me is I actually got into motor racing quite late on in my in my life, in, in my mid, sorry, my early 30s. Um, I worked with Jackie Stewart and I was his personal trainer for three years. So I travelled around yeah. with him to races, uh, to test, etc., meetings, etc., all over the all over the world, really. And so I got an insight into how it operated from the from the inside, really, from a different uh, perspective. Obviously, him being a legendary world champion and also a team owner, he just literally uh, was in the midst of selling the team when I, I started working with him. So. We had a great uh, had a great insight into the whole world how it operated. Hmm. And so, were you a personal trainer before going into motorsport? Was that what you did day to day? Yeah, I was. I was a trainer for I think I started. Uh, so I was about a trainer for about eight years already before I got the job with Jackie. And then, well, then I got the opportunity to uh, go to McLaren, um, which I was hesitant about at first because I'd already made a commitment elsewhere. But then I thought, you know what, this is a fantastic opportunity that I'm never going to get again. And I was a bit blessed that, uh, well, a lot blessed actually when I look at it now because it doesn't happen now, is the team put me wherever the driver lived. I lived where the driver lived, so I lived in the south of France 
and all paid for Spain all paid for then yeah it just went from there really so I had a, had a really good time I was, it was at the time of cigarette advertising so it was a lot of uh, a lot of money around and again with a team like McLaren they just wanted everything to be just so yeah that makes perfect sense but what about your early years um, Jerry what was it like growing up what did you learn about you know life as, as a kid what, what, what did it teach you uh, well I had a bit of an unusual upbringing in the fact that I'm, I'm from my accent. You can probably tell I'm Scottish, but I, I lived in uh, the Middle East for six years uh, when I was a kid as well. I went to five different junior schools, primary schools. So I was always a new kid. And uh, at one point, me and my sister were the only non, uh, we were the only European kids in our in our school, actually, at one point. So it was a, yeah, I was, I was open to a lot of different cultures. And I think that led in, me into been very open-minded about people and I think that led into my career and it really helped I was in the military for a little bit as well so that again it opened, I was always looking at new challenges and always I still am to be honest with you, even at 57 years of age I'm always looking at new challenges I've got good energy I mix with young people because I love young people's energy or younger people's energy and I learned that from Jackie Stewart you know that you know when you he always he likes being around younger people because they energize him and it just makes sense you know like it's a totally I like I love that philosophy and it, it, it's worked for me so yeah that was my upbringing I, it was it was interesting like I said never a dull moment I loved it you know I like the variety of life I still do and I'm always looking for that next thing yeah I mean it's, it's interesting because for some people moving around schools quite a lot can you know, maybe cause a bit of dissonance from, you know, life and it can cause a bit of distraction. But it sounds like you took it as a challenge, you know, meeting new people every single time you've changed school. It sounds like you're that kind of person that you took on yeah. that kind of outlook. Does that, does that resonate? Exactly. And that was the time when people didn't travel. You know, it was like, that. This, I mean, it sounds probably weird to you, but it was 1970s. Uh, so a long time ago. And so, you know, that was from 1970 to 1976 that we moved between Bahrain and, and Qatar. Um, and... Yeah, just I, I guess I just got used to it just to get my stride. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it would have been, you know, it's easy to look back in hindsight and say it was dead easy for me, but maybe there was times when it wasn't so much. But I had to either sink or swim, so it was one of those I just learned the learned that way. So when I go into new opportunities, to be honest with you, I just I look at it with excitement rather than fear. Yeah, because it's probably like someone else that might have got offered a job or Jackie Stewart might have turned it down because, you know, they didn't think they were ready or prepared. But, you know, the fact that you're you know, open to the challenges and open to the theatre and finding out what, like, taking that on makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was, there, was two, there was two avenues I was going to go. There was either going to be working in the film business or working in, in motorsport or professional sport in some capacity. And they were the two targets I had. And I was close to the film thing at one point. Um I just missed out on a James Bond film. It was uh, a bit of a lack of communication. I was supposed to be working with a leading lady in the, the last Pierce Brosnan film, but then it got, uh, there was a miscommunication between the production and the uh, stunt department. The stunt department took me on. And then, uh, and then so the, the, the literally a day I was supposed to meet her, the day before I was supposed to meet her, the production people phoned me up and said, look, we've made a mistake and we've had to use another guy. And because just basically because they didn't communicate with each other and the production people connect, uh, contact the guy from the previous movie, who ended up working with uh, Daniel Craig in the end. So he was Daniel Craig's trainer for 15 years. So it was a bit of a sliding doors moment where, you know, it wasn't meant to be. It was just one of those things, you know. So, uh, yeah. And then I ended up going into motor racing. And what was what was the first day on the job like? And why did you pick motor racing? What was what was the what did it draw you to that? 
um well i was like i said i wasn't brought up with car you know with cars you know i came from a different background yeah the uh, military background martial arts everything you know i was all football everything. i was completely different from from uh motorsport but I think sometimes it's good to come in with a different uh, outlook on things rather than be in that sport all the time. Um, I'm not like, a, I'm, like I said, I'm not a fanatical car fan. I'm still not, even to this day. I'm all about human beings. I love, I'm a people person. My parents were people people. So it's just, yes, yeah, one of those things. So for me, it was, I saw a gap, even when I was going around with Jackie, even more so because I could see that, and I still think it's still missing. I'll be honest with you, I still think in motor racing, it's still not where it should be regarding human performance. It's much, much better than it was. But I still think, and that's what drives me, is I still think there's gaps there where um, the human side is not factored in uh, quite as as it should be. You know, it's one of the last things. Normally, I'm one of the last people to be drafted into the team, and that's because they think about the humans last, really. They think about the machine first. But by then, you're often on the back foot or the teams on the back foot and you're having to do a lot of repair work. Whereas I think, you, sh- you know, people in my position should be in there from the beginning. So you can take, you can take charge. It's different. If you're working with a the driver, they bring you in quickly to work with the driver because that's, that's an obvious one, you know, that they need a trainer or performance coach or mind coach. But regarding the rest of the crew, you know, I work closely with pit crew members as well. And I really enjoy that. And that was my option, my choice to do that because I felt that that was an area, again, that wasn't really being paid enough attention to. So, um, yeah. So for me, it was important that I, I looked after the whole team because there's no point in this driver's being strong and everybody else struggling physically and mentally. So, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. There's an interesting phenomenon around, you know, you put, a top performer in a group of people that aren't performing as well. And that person's performance drops by a certain percentage. And it's interesting, you know, if you focus on everyone else being performing well, they're more likely to bring that person up. So if you do, if you, do you take the team approach and you increase the, you know, the development of each individual member in a team, you're more likely to bring the driver up anyway, rather than, you know, drag them down. So it makes complete sense that it would, that would be there. But so from, from your experience, like when you first joined like an F1 team, we are, and you first joined like motorsport, what we, what would you, what were you exposed to? Yeah, basically, again, for my first racing driver in, in Formula One um, was uh, David Coulthard. So at the time, uh, David, had, his trainer had just left. So I came in and to work with him from 2002, end of 2002 onwards. And yeah, it's pretty much getting stuck in straight away, which is just how I like to operate, really. Um, getting straight in, understanding how he worked before, how he trained, etc., and to bring in, you know, new ideas from my side, obviously that was important as well from my perspective and to make it fresh for him. Because it's, you know, we, none of us know everything and that includes coaches and um, even coaches need coaches sometimes and inspiration. So I think that when I first went in with David, it was just to maybe give him a little bit of a different philosophy with training, but very similar to his previous uh, trainer, but with a little bit of a twist on it a little bit as well, you know, so to just, just my way of operating. Yeah. And so if you'd take me through like maybe the, the steps that would, we would we'd go through working together, so imagine I'm a new, I'm a rookie in, you know, let's say F, F2 and you're mm-hmm. working with me, to, you know, get me into F1. What is the kind of stuff that we go through? What, what we would talk about? It's giving us 10% off. So if you listen to this podcast in the show notes below will be a link to the website. And if you use code ignition 10, you get 10% off store wide products. So enjoy and enjoy the rest of the episode. Well, I mean, obviously me doing the groundwork and making sure that I knew your background was, was really important. Um, 
number one, I like to I like to work with or even develop good characters. Um, for me, because I think yeah. that's really important. Because there's, you know, like any anything in life, you're always when you get to a certain point, uh, mindset is everything. Because you know, if everybody's fit. It's it's a matter of who's got that mental edge a lot of the time. Okay, you know, the car, etc. Of course, that's a given. But when it comes down to it, when you've got you know, say like a Hamilton and Verstappen, for example, or back in back in the day, maybe Hamilton Alonso, that sort of thing. It's about mindset. It's about how you operate mentally. So for me, it would be trying to get to know the person to understand what makes them tick, and also maybe look at. I, I quite often in my sessions because I was. Um, one of the things I like to do, and it comes from my background as well, is people work hard when they're with me, and that helps to develop not just physical toughness but uh, mental toughness also, or resilience, whatever, you, however you want to call it. But um, for me, it was building that, and all the guys that I, I've worked with have developed that. You know, maybe they didn't have it quite at the beginning, but it was about developing it first. You know, there's, there's guys still around that I used to work with. You know, like. Uh, Nick Yellily, Alex Lynn, Alex, Alexander Sims, all those guys that are still around operating um, at a good level. And they, they all developed this mental toughness. And uh, that was something that, I mean, they've got to be open to it, obviously, as well. It's, you know, not everybody's, I mean, not everybody's going to want to work hard, but you kind of develop it, you ingrain it within them. And, you know, one or two of the guys, you know, maybe when I first, not necessarily those guys I'm talking about now, but some people in the past, they just haven't wanted it enough, you know. So for me, I want to find out if you if you're going to do it, you got to do it right. And you know, you're spending a lot of money, a lot of time. And I also don't want to work with, you know, I've got more professional pride. I want to work with people who want to work hard and get to where they want to get. Uh, I've seen racing drivers have been at tests when young drivers uh, they fail because they, maybe they haven't trained their neck enough or something. I would hate that to be happened to any of my drivers and it it just wouldn't basically, you know, cause I always wouldn't let it happen. It's just not going to, you've got, you've got to look at every single element of performance. And if you're failing in the car, cause your neck's not strong enough, then you haven't done your work, you know? So yeah, it's a matter of taking ownership as well. So the lads, um, so for the, you know, it would be like a two way street, for example, with, if you said, if you were that, if you were that rookie, for example, I would be looking to see what you're, what, how that you want it, you know, you want it that badly, you know, you want to work hard, you're willing to put the, the hard yards in to get to where you want to go. You just don't expect it's your right to be a racing driver or a Formula One driver, wherever you want to get to in your career. It's, it takes a hard, it's a hard old slog and none of these guys get there by sheer luck. You know, it's there's a, obviously there's talent, and there is okay. Some people have got money, but at the same time, you know, quite a few of the drivers I work with have had money, but they've been hard workers. You know, and they've they've grafted. They they know that it takes grit to, first of all, to get there, uh, and then grit again, and that extra element of grit to stay there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, Jerry. And and so, like, when you talk about mental toughness, because this is something I'm interested in, are we mm-hmm. talking about like? self-belief resilience and what, what are the kind of things that we're working on and how do you sort of you know work on making that even tougher or is that even a, a thing you can do yeah you can do it yeah you can, i mean you, i was constantly i i do constantly test the drivers i work with um and building that resilience i mean i haven't the young drivers it's building that toughness layer by layer um i know toughness isn't a word that's used too much these days i mean resilience is probably more the word but it's the same thing you know it's just uh 
it's, it's still the same thing. It's still build, building layers of armor, if you like, you know, not just physical armor, but mental armor as well, so that you can deal with the pressures that go with it. And also, because I understand that world as well, how, how cutthroat it can be, even at the lower levels, you know, these, you know, these guys, you see it in Carton, I'm sure you've seen it, Harry, as well. Even in Carton, it's, it's pretty cutthroat, you know, and they're building, they're already building that toughness there. So for me, it's, it's, it's looking again at the gaps of where they could be tougher, could, where they could be stronger. Discipline is, discipline is number one for me. Uh, if you've if you've got the you've got the discipline and the self discipline, um, people, you can only give people so much discipline, and then the rest is up to them. They've got to inherit. They've got to embrace that themselves and be willing to do it. And that doesn't mean just being in the gym or being out on a bike or wherever. It's it's carrying that everywhere you go, and yeah, having those visions. Where do you want to go? Okay, I want to be a Formula One driver. Yeah, but what have you got to do to get there? You know. You've got a vision, but a vision alone is not enough. You've got to put the work in to, to get there. And if you do it step by step, stage by stage, it's a little bit of little victories, achieving this, achieving that. And like I said, those those guys that, you know, like I named earlier on and some other guys that I haven't mentioned, but they've, you know, over the years, they've built this, these layers of toughness and resilience, if you like, and armor and strength and, and you know, both mental, physical, emotional, to be able to deal with the highs and lows in their careers, and that's got to start from an early stage. Harry, you got to get you got to get that into people, get them into that way of thinking straight away because you've only got a small window. When you're young, you don't realize, you know, and we all do it. We look back on our lives and and we think, you know, what I thought I had a massive window and time was always going to be my friend, but it isn't. You've only got a small window of opportunity, and it's making them people realize that this. Oh, you've always got to be ready for when that chance comes along because uh, you just never know when it's going to happen. You know, I even saw it when uh, there was a great example of that for me when I was working with Pedro de la Rosa and, uh, when I was at McLaren. And Pedro was a test driver along with Alex Verts and our team at the time uh, when Dave Coulthard and uh, both Kimi and, uh, and Montoya were there as well. So for us, for me, uh, Pedro got this opportunity uh, that came out of the blue, um, but he was he was quite fit. But every day I walked on him, he was in pieces. But he had this mental toughness that he was going to get through this, and he was going to put the. I mean, back in those days, it was the V10 car as well, so it was very, very tough car to drive, very physical. And I'm not sure. I think it was either Jerez or Barcelona, but whichever one it was, he had three days of agony that he just powered through because he just, he didn't let me know exactly. He told me a few months later that he, every day was a nightmare for him, you know, mentally, but he still kept going because he wanted it so badly and he got it in the end. He, you know, he got a great contract and, you know, it, it went from there. He even got in the race seat when Montoya left and got eight races out, you know, as a, as a, as a race driver. So that hard work paid off for him. Yeah. I think essentially you say that you apply those things you talk about like resilience and, and, and discipline and like you said being in agony you kind of even the brain's amazing isn't it you're able to overcome those things even if you don't don't really feel like doing it the day you wake up in the morning if you're disciplined enough you get out of bed and you have a shower and you get on with the other day if you're not you know you stay in the bed or you you get something open around you're, you're less active and um, exactly. did you did you did you feel the same jerry when you looked at these drivers did you know what they were going through when did you how did you develop this own sort of toughness you have how, how was how did it work for you how did you build yourself up to a point being able to coach people on this as well 
Um, I think because I always like to work hard and I've got quite a high um, tolerance of pain or discomfort, if you like. Um, mm. I don't mind, you know, putting myself through it, um, not finding the hard work. And I think I just be always just brought up that way a little bit. You know, I didn't come from like a school of hard knocks. It wasn't, you know, I've come from Glasgow, but it is a school, where it is a school of hard knocks. But um, <laughs> I did. I did go to school there as well, you know. So it's it really was that that school of hard knocks, but that wasn't where I suppose you know you don't realize subconsciously you're taking things on as you go through life. Um, but for me, it was always you just cracked on with everything and you just got you just got on with it. And if one thing didn't work out, you just go for another thing. You know, you just keep pushing. I know it's not always easy for people, and it's not easy for anybody. But it just depends. Yeah. I mean, I'm a I'm a life for living kind of person. So for me. I haven't got time to to mess about. Do you know what I mean, like I've only got we're only here for a visit. You know, at the end of the day, you've just got to maximise every bit of time you've got. And I've I've crammed a lot into my life uh, so far, and there's a lot more I want to cram in before the, uh, you know, before it's all over. But it's it's you know I think it's just again realizing you know that time isn't on anybody's side. You know, uh, even if you're a young guy, you think you've got plenty of time. You know, I talk to young guys now. And, you know, they think, oh, yeah, I'll do this one and this and I'll do this one and that. Well, you're not going to always get that opportunity. You know, you're not, you might not, that might not happen, you know, and, and somebody else might take that opportunity when you're sleeping, when you're in bed. It's that Mike Tyson thing. I don't know if you've seen it, Harry, when he's out running. You see this film of him out running when he's back in the day when he was fighting at his, his best. And he said, I'm out running at four o'clock in the morning because I know my opponent's in bed, you know, so... Or even in his head, maybe his opponent isn't in bed, but in his head he is. So he's already get building that mentality that he wants to beat this this guy. This you know he's visualizing this guy's not as prepared as him, and that's the kind of mindset that I like to get into the guys. It's it's that that toughness, and I think in single seaters, for example, especially, I think you really need that. You know because it's as you know yourself, it's um, it is a pretty tough. You know, you only twenty two. I think twenty two drivers. You know, in, in the in the in the Formula One. You know, it, you know, and in the world. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Really, and it's like you know, there's other there's so many people waiting in the queue behind them, and they were in that queue at one point. Yeah, they were waiting for their time. You know, so they sh- they should always have that in the back of their head, not to the point of where it affects their performance, but it drives them and it doesn't let them. You know, you see guys like Hamilton and Alonso and. And Verstappen, they're, they're they're there because they're driven, aren't they? Literally, you know, they're literally driven in what they in what they do. They don't. They've got that sort of. I know they're probably the they're the elite of the elite, aren't they? But you know, you can if you can take ten percent of one of those guys, you know, and put it into your, invest it into your own soul, into your own what your your own heart. You know, what I mean that you want to be, you want this so badly. Because you'll be able to, you're a long time retired. You're, if you retire at say 35, if you're a racing driver, or you, you know, even at 40, if you're a, you know, Alonso still going, but you know, not everybody will be. But you've, even then, even if he retires in a couple of years' time when he's 44, 45, he's still going to be a long time retired. You know, but I'm sure he'll look back on his career and go, you know what, I gave it everything. No, it's exactly like one of those few people that have done almost every single motorsport discipline just because he wanted to you know it's just like oh, i think i can do this did it and then just made the most like you say it's called the human experience for a reason you know you're only here for a, <laughs> for a bit of time and i think exactly. it's a great great message to carry on to people is that you know exactly i i'm 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 only 22 but if i want to do the things i want to do i bet better start getting cracking because like you say you see 
there's footballers at 21, you know, these F1 drivers my age. I'm like, they're doing that now. How do I get to what I want to do as well? Well, yeah, yeah. And that's it. But you're on the path, you know, you, you don't, you don't have to be doing your own podcast, do you? You could be, you know, you've taken that very positive step. Not a lot of people would put themselves out there, especially at 22, you know, years of age, being out there, you know, doing what you're doing. And, you know, it's very visual. It's very, you know, you, you even more so now you're putting yourself in the, very much in the public eye already, aren't you? So, you taking that takes courage and i think that's another thing that's really important is having courage you know and building that courage and, and you know and if you know not i've failed you know we've all failed at something you know and but it's get it's dusting yourself off and getting back up again and going you know what i'm just going to go into the next thing boom let's just travel forward yeah and no, i always say that if you if you told 18 year old harry he'd be doing a podcast he would have told you to go away because uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just, just the way yeah. you used to speak, I wasn't, you know, the, yeah, like I say, the, 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 the ability to speak to people now is a lot better than it was. And that's, that's smart. And that's only marginal increase, you know, all that took me to do is turn a camera on and start speaking to someone. And it's, it's people like you, you know, the first I think you're the first mindset coach I've had on the podcast. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Okay. It's like these, these, I only get this conversation once. You know, I only get this time to ask you and pick your brain, you know, for the first time once. Um, mm-hmm. But when you talk about stress, like Joe, you know, talking about those, you know, these F1 drivers getting, but you know, stress from the bottom, from the media, from the top, from the F1 teams to perform. How are you? What is this just like for you? Are you being told by the F1 teams that drivers need to be doing this or that? Is it, are you left to your own devices? How does it work for a for a mindset coach in F1? Are you being driven by them or yourself? Um, I think you know. They, I think it depends on. They've obviously got a remit, and everybody everybody's got a different remit. Say, for example. When I went from David Coulthard to Montoya, you know, the remit was obviously was for him to lose weight, for uh, one to lose weight, because he wasn't into training at all. And I mean, the team were really, McLaren were really good with me. They gave me a lot of, I've obviously got to, they've got to, you've got to earn their trust. You know, they're not just going to say, oh, this guy's, you know, the next James Bond and he's going to be like fantastic. You know what I mean? You've, and like, without even seeing what you do. So you've got to kind of, especially at that level. Um, but I think once they know you're doing a good job and it's, you know, it's, it's visual, um, in terms of performance and in terms of how the driver gets on with you, how kind of vibe you create in the team, it's amongst the rest of the team as well. That's really important. Um, but for example, with Montoya, I had to, you know, he, he didn't like to train before and, and uh, David always had a very structured program, which I really liked, you know, that was really how I liked to, to operate ideally as well. And, you know, we were, we were, you know, one of the, I think it was only ourselves and Schumacher that were doing strength training back then. Um, it was the rest of the guys were very into the cardio. I know it sounds crazy, but the rest of the guys were either just into cardio and doing network, uh, that kind of thing, you know, it's, and the diet was different. There wasn't any, it wasn't so much protein involved. You know, they have pasta with tomato sauce at lunchtime, for example, before they got in the car. But. Um, we kind of like we were a little bit different how we operated, and it was you know David was naturally a slim guy, and then to put the he, he had he had good muscle on him by the time I got there because his trainer had done a really good job the previous guy, and it was just a matter of keeping that going. But uh, Montoya never trained, and everybody tried to push him to train. He was just a bull. The guy was a bull. He didn't. He kind of like he was so strong. He was just he's only about five six. I don't know what that is in centimeters, but um he was he was five six <laughs> and uh he was but he was very stocky and strong strong neck etc you know so um but with that i just had to look at him and go like okay i'm not going to force you to train even although i you know i like to train like a structure like say with dc but my job was to work with mon pablo so 
I had to find a way, and the, the way was to make it a bit of fun for him, really, you know, to because he was like a child with a toy. He liked toys, you know, like he liked, you know, the best bikes. He liked the best jet skis. He liked all this. He had to make it, as long as he was active and he was, you know, he, he, I wouldn't get him in the gym. I think we had one gym session the whole time I ever uh, worked with him. The rest of it, yeah, the rest, the rest was all, you know, was all... Um, other work, you know, stuff outside, you know, so a lot of cycling and etc. But um, and then you got you lost seven kilos with me. So I just said to him, like, okay, I'm not going to make you train because everybody who tried to make him train, he just got fed up with it and just stopped and just refused to do it. So I just thought, well, I'm going to go in. I say, okay, the one thing that, which is the truth is that he was a top racing driver. He can drive anything, still can even to this day. Um, nobody can ever say that you're not a top racing driver and you're mega fast. But the one thing they can say is that you're, you know, you struggle with your weight. So I said, okay, let's let's get that one out of the way so that the press can't jump on it or nobody can jump on it or even give the drivers and the other drivers any comfort in that because when they know you've got a, it was easy to ridicule them, you know. Should, you know, I don't like people doing that, but. Um, so I just said, okay, let's treat you like you're a movie star training for a film. You're going to turn up in Australia and you're going to be, they're not going to recognize you as, as the guy that was got out of the car in Brazil when you won the race. You're going to be another guy when you get there. And he did, he lost seven kilos and he looked in good shape. And, and that was it really, you know, so, but I think when you, again, it's dealing with different characters. I mean, Juan Pablo, South American, very combustible. I liked him a lot. You know, we had, I'd gone really well with him and his family and everything. DC was a very different kind of character as well. Great bloke, great fun. You know, you, every, every kind of pretty much what you see on the TV is what you get with DC. You know, loyal guy, great guy, fantastic, loved him, super fit. But two very different characters from two different, very different cultures. And Again, it was adapting to that and to be willing to adapt to it. And uh, yeah, it worked out pretty well with, with that. I was going to say, yeah, it sounds like you've, you know, you've come up against an obstacle, haven't you? But, you know, people aren't all the same. You're trying to get this guy to train when he won't do it. And, you know, you said, interestingly, you're, you're intriguing him with, you know, jet skis and stuff or bikes and he's kind of moving the body, but, you know, getting them to be more active in a different way so they enjoy it. And actually maybe enjoying training is more important than actually the results you get from it. I, I don't know. No, no, sure. I mean, the thing is, if to be honest with her, if he wasn't, if he wasn't strong, then that would be another story. Obviously, I'd be getting him in the gym and say, "Look, you have to train because you know you're not strong enough." But he, he never in his neck. I don't think we ever really even hardly trained his neck. To be honest with you, he was just naturally strong. Um, in Brazil, for example, everybody struggles with the neck. He never had an issue. I mean, he won. I think he won two years in a row in Brazil with Williams and then with ourselves at McLaren afterwards. Um, but yeah. It was, uh, yeah, good times. Yeah. Obviously, you spent a lot of time in F1, um, Jerry, but what, what are you doing now? What is the, you know, what are you trying to do? What You said, you mentioned earlier, you know, there's places that need to be cracked. So what are, are you going into those cracks? Or what is what is Jerry's day-to-day look like at the moment? Yeah, it, it's it's kind of, it's, it's a very different uh, from the F1 days, but I like it. You know, I like the variety of it. Um, basically, I'm working in World Endurance Championship with Cadillac. So I'm looking after the team there, looking after the drivers there, looking after the team there, you know, making sure that you know, they've got jet lag travel, you know, travel programs, training, you know, just general training programs. The racing drivers look after them at the racetrack. Um, obviously, you've got the 24 hour races. It's 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 build up to the race, then the then the uh, recovery afterwards. Helping them during the race weekend, yeah, the whole team, you know, like so. I'll look at the, I'll be working with the pit crew, and I'll be doing video analysis with those guys as well. So we're very close, 
um, I was part of the recruiting process there, and the and the because we're a new team. I really, I like that. I really enjoyed that. It's the first time I've actually been part of a recruitment process, um, and I've always wanted to be part of one. Um, but because it was a brand new team, it, it, and the opportunity came along, I, I was part of it. And I want to get good characters, good strong characters, and because like racing drivers, there's a lot of good mechanics out there. Um, but are they the right characters? You know, I mean, first of all, we needed experience, uh, and. And we also needed characters because it was never going to be easy to start with from us from starting a team from scratch, especially with you know working with Ganassi, working with GM, uh, Cadillac, a big name, a lot of pressure, and you know so. But I'm, yeah, I'm really happy with the guys. Love love working with those guys. But yeah, I'm really big into it. and again, it all goes ties hand in hand, Harry. It's a team culture, really. It's team culture, team building. Um, I've I've done a lot of team building training camps with racing drivers and teams in the past pit crew teams racing drivers you know when i worked at dtm in dtm we were twice a year we were away on training camps with the with the drivers because you had to keep there was six or seven drivers sometimes eight drivers all you know uh, obviously high testosterone and very talented all hungry guys from different cultures trying to keep those guys together um before the season started and then in the middle of the season as well to before we hit the the tail end of the season to keep everybody together. But it was great. And that was great fun. And I want to develop that in, in teams. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't have to be race teams, but um, you know, I still see that massive gap in racing teams. Like I said, people get very stuck into the X's and O's, you know, they look into the data a lot, but they don't really look at the humans enough for me still. Um, that's racing drivers and uh, staff. Uh, people within the team and you know there's there's loads to do still there's so much to do and I'm just waiting for somebody as well to have the courage to to look at things in a different way um whether it's race teams whether it's you know football teams I went and visited a high uh, Premier League football team yesterday and uh just to see how they operated and you know, there's so many things you spot, you know, that you can do and you can, you know, with, with, with the background and everything that you can do. And I'm just excited about, I'm just waiting, like say, for that opportunity or just for somebody to have that courage from whatever background to just go, you know, we need to sort our team out. We need to make sure we look after our, let's get our guys right first. Let's get the humans looked after, motivated, you know, uh, have a vision, share the vision. You know, be part of the the team. Know how to deal with uh, disappointment. Know how to speak up if you need to speak up. Have an open mind. Be listening to ideas. You know, from other, from people within the team, um, because everybody's got should be able to contribute. Um, you know, there's sometimes the quiet guys, the guys who never get a voice. They're often the guys that have got the best ideas, but you just never you never hear it because they either haven't got the confidence themselves to do it or. They're scared to do it or they just think, well, what's the point? Because it's not going to be listened to anyway. Um, whereas you want to give people that courage and that opportunity to speak up because, you know, I've done it with other teams before. Um, you know, when, when I was at Mercedes Formula E team, we developed a really strong team culture there. And it helped us win two back-to-back um, Formula E championships. And that's that culture really helped us do that. You know, I'm not saying it was only me there was we all, we all worked together but it was it was having that vision because it's got to come from the top harry's they can't be just the middle management's really important because they they look after everything once it's all up and going but the, the top 
you know, like a total wolf. And he did a great job there making sure that, you know, the culture was right in the team. But obviously he didn't do that by himself. He had a lot of people within the team that were uh, relaying that message and making sure that all those that all those little compartments, all those units were all working together um, with the right, the same philosophy throughout the whole team. And I can imagine like you're talking about working with, you know, endurance championships that maybe the, the coaching there's different from if you were talking about F1. So there's, you know, because of the time that you're getting a lot more tired, you know, there's a lot more going on. Is it, how does it work for a driver that's in F1 versus a driver that's in endurance? Is there like a, how do you change the mindset for them as well? Well, first of all, I think what is quite refreshing for a Formula One driver sometimes to come into endurance racing because they enjoy the team, the team vibe. I'm not saying every single person would, but I think most of them do enjoy it when they come into it. And it's a bit more of a camaraderie uh, because you've got two other guys, you know, plus a reserve, if there's a reserve there, who are all heading, who go on the same goal. But you're sharing it rather than it's being, you know, because, you know, in Formula One, okay, it's a team but it's not a team, if you know what I mean. It's like it's two guys that are very, you know, single-minded. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying the guys aren't uh, aren't hungry in endurance sports because they really are. I mean, you've still got the bit between the teeth, and you know, you still see that determination. But it's a bit of a different vibe. So I think that first of all, I think they find it quite refreshing when they go there, and quite uh, it gives them a another refreshes their mindset a little bit. I think. When they do that, uh, when they go into an endurance racing, and again, yeah, you have to think a lot, bit a lot more. The strategy is a lot different, obviously. Um, you can't just go, you know, balls out. You got to think about the whole, the whole thing. What's happening when the next guy gets in the car, etc. You know, and depending on the on the length of the race. Um, yeah, it's. It, I mean, the fitness is, is is again, it's a little bit different. Um, you know. The, there's not the, the strength and uh, you still need a strong neck and they still need to be fit, very fit, etc. but not to the, maybe the neck, maybe not quite to the degree that in formula one, where it's, you know, the, the, the speed of those cars. Um, And Joe, you talked like multiple times about, you know, someone giving you a break to, to start that racing team. If, you know, if you were going to go in tomorrow and someone was going to, you know, give you the chance to, you know, build your racing team from scratch, I'm just interested. What would be like three, values that you'd hold the whole team to what would be your ultimate sort of value set for that for that team going forward to create that culture that you want to see in, in a race team well, that's a great question i mean number one for me would be to you'd create a team literal team you know where everybody is open-minded and they can speak their mind that's that's really important and they have that they call it you know um psychology and psychological safety you know where people feel that they can't speak up without being either ridiculed or you know their their opinions aren't valued that's number one uh secondly um no blame culture straight away no blame culture um and you know i think not necessarily and this isn't necessarily in order but also to have our own identity as a team you know to to build our own legacy and 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 those and to have those standards and mark those standards down so that everybody understands. So if a guy leaves the team, the next guy comes in and he's got a list of standards that we adhere to, the, the non-negotiables, you know, that you know we won't tolerate as a team. Uh, we're not saying people don't make mistakes. We won't say that people don't slip up. But, you know, but you can always hark back to those lessons learned, those standards set. Um, because the standards you walk past are the standards that you... Uh, you become, you know, so if you don't, if you don't, if you don't actually you know, uphold those standards you've set, 
then there's no point in sending them in the first place. So that'd be the first, that'd be the th- three of the things that I would do. There'd be many more, um, but for sure, that's that's a really good question. Yeah, I think it's brilliant because there's, um, there's a high performance podcast, which I listen to quite a bit, and they're always talking about those those three non-negotiables. I think that's a, a great way to have, you know, any any business or any company or any sort of, you know, a team is a business, isn't it? You're running it from head down to the, to the people that run it for you. Yeah. yeah, because you're always what you should always be doing, Harry. And and you look at any elite performers, whether that's like you know elite military units or elite teams of any of any uh, form, they'll always look at the worst case scenario. So how do you, how what well, they'll train for that worst case scenario, but then when it happens, because you know when you make when first contact's made with your plan, it usually goes out the window. So you have to be prepared to be able to deal with it. And if your mindset is don't panic, okay, we know what we need to do in this situation because you're drilled, you're well-trained, you're disciplined. Um, that goes throughout the whole team. You know, no, no stone should be left unturned in, in terms of preparation. And I think there's, I think there's always, a, I don't think there's any excuse for not having it, to be honest with you. I think it's, it's just a matter of, not just going with, well, this is how we've always done it, you know, which I find quite a lot still. There's almost at the point where there's too much information. I always remember going into, when I first went to America years and years ago, I mean, 20 odd years ago, 30 odd years ago, I can't remember. And I remember going into supermarkets and they had like magazines, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of magazines and stuff. And you're just like, whoa, which one do I get? You know, it's kind of like that. And it's obviously with America, everything's big, isn't it, in America? So they're the selection of everything you could, you could get. And it kind of it's a bit mind blowing and a little bit shocking. I think now there's so much information out there that it's almost a little bit too much overload for people. And when it does become that way, people swipe. You know, if you can swipe, it's like it's a, it, it's they'll move on to the next thing because it's just like nobody only people can only take so much. So I think you've got to you've got to cut through. Um, you've got to cut through everything and find your own. Uh, North Star, if you like, the thing that you're aiming for and keep going for it. Okay, I'm not saying don't look at other things, but don't choose so many things that you end up having uh, paralysis by analysis because you end up, you'll never be ready otherwise, you know what I mean? Because you're thinking, well, that guy said that and this guy said that and, you know, this guy says do a cartwheel before you go into a deadlift or, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, you know, it's everybody going, they're all going for hits, they're all going for, they're all going for effect, but you know, and that's, I think that's the toughest thing now for especially young, well, young people anywhere, but especially young people coming through it, the distractions are there and that ability to be self-disciplined and to have a clear focus is getting more and more difficult. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think it's, yeah, like I say, be, be able to, because, you know, being exposed to like TikTok and social media that young people do like, struggle to focus on attention. Like I know that when yeah. I can see mine slipping sometimes, cause I'll be pick up my phone to do a post on social media. And I've realized I just spent the next 10 minutes after the post has gone up like scrolling. And it's just like, well, you, how, how do you, you know, create some kind of barrier for people to know that actually you, you kind of, your, your, your attention, your focus is the most important thing. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, yeah, I find it myself, you know, really, I have to be strong. I mean, there's times when I just, I've only literally gone back onto social media, I had two months off it because I was just, I just thought, you know, I've got to clear my mind. I'm getting distracted here, you know, and it's easy to do it. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's good, you know, that you there's, that does pull you in. There's a lot of rubbish that pulls you in as well, but there's a lot of good stuff that pulls you in too. And you've got to, the more you're watching, the less you're doing, isn't it? So you're like, you're not going to be, you know, you before you know it, the day's gone. And you haven't done anything. 
but watch other people do their thing, you know, and, and, you know, so for me, it's just, I, like I said, because time is such a, you know, crucial element to all of us, um, then we should be spending our time investing in, in, in what we want to do, really want to do. Yeah. Um, and Jerry, uh, it's coming to the end of the podcast and I ask sort of five questions, sort of like fast, fast paced questions. And the first one is, what was your ultimate three car garage? <laughs> You're talking to the guy that's not really into cars that much. So uh, I <laughs> I'll have a Morris mine. No, I'll. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big James Bond fan, so I love. Uh, I got to have an Aston Martin, at least one mm. Aston Martin. Um, okay, so Aston Martin, probably two Aston Martins. The DB is it the DB five, the one that was in the Goldfinger, the the one, uh, and Daniel Craig's had it. Uh, and it probably all Aston Martins actually. The one that was in again, I don't know the models. The one that was in Casino Royale, and the one that was in The Living Daylights. I like those three cars. DBS and Advantage, just for people that are, that are you know, okay. listening. Is, yeah, DBS, DBS and Advantage V8. You talking about the seventies or muscle car Aston? Uh, the, the Aston, yeah, that was in the, that was in the eighties. That film. So I guess it, but yeah. it looked like the seventies type. Yeah, I liked it. It was a really, <laughs> yeah. I think, he might have had it. I think he might have had it in the last movie as well, Daniel Craig. I think he, he had that as well. I think he had two cars. I think he had that DB5 and then he had that other one as well. Yeah, yeah. Cool. If you don't like cars, well, no, no, don't, you don't like cars, we're not really into them. Um, but the next question is, you know, if you had one car to drive on any road or track, um, where would you go? But I'm going to, I'm guessing I'm going to change it. Now, if you could, going to change it. If you could work for one team in one motorsport, where would you go and why? Ooh. Well, I think I would go if I if I could have my time again, I would go into IndyCar with Ganassi, because uh, I worked with Dario Franchitti when he was at Ganassi. I worked with him remotely, if you like, for the last couple of years of his career, and uh, I work with them now. And I just like the I just like the vibe of that team. And I like I like um, the American racing. <laughs> I think IndyCar is something that's you know becoming increasingly increasingly more popular, isn't it? I think. Um, yeah. what I've seen from, from the way it's been growing, I think mm. it's a great sport for if you, you know, if you like if you like single seat racing, it's a great one to to watch if you yeah. if you're bored of F one. Um, and Joe, the next the next question is, if you could do anything, right, money was no object, what would you do for a living? For a living, I, I wouldn't change it to be honest with you. Yeah, I've I've got no money is not a problem. I don't I'm not really a big driven by money, so for me it's not like I just want to be happy and and fulfilled oh great that's fantastic yeah so mm-hmm. something like someone asked a question and the guy's you don't know he's working for aston martin and he's like oh, i want to be a i want to be gardener i was like well why aren't you a gardener then <laughs> clearly that would make me more happy um yeah yeah it's so one of those questions which kind of figures out you know for me anyway it kind of figures out who i'm talking to and what, what, what they're like um, yeah, it's a good question yeah man. and then it's, the next one is what's the advice you'd give to a young person that wants to pursue something with their passion or anyone actually go for it you know uh just go for it visualize that window closing that you've only got that short window and just visualizing it closing it's only it's it's only there for a short time and you know de- depending on what you do if it's a sportsman it's an even smaller window uh because physically yeah. um and it takes a certain sort of drive um literally whether it's you know motor racing driver whether it's a i don't know an mma fighter or whatever is yeah, go for it because you just have to do every single thing you can to be to do it. And if you're going to do it, be the best you can be at it. And that's under your control to do that. 
to be the best you can be. Great. And Joe, the last question is, um, what do you love most about motorsport? I like the fun of it. I like the variety. I like mixing with lots of different cultures. Um, I love that. You know, I'm look, like I've got some really good teammates. I'm really looking forward to seeing them in a couple of weeks in Bahrain. Uh, yeah, it's it's just a nice vibe. You know, it's a cool vibe, and it's like I said, we got with all of us that are in it. I've got to feel blessed in some way, and we all get a little yeah. bit. It's like everybody who's as I go speaking to the guy yesterday, the, the football team. He said you, you don't realize. You know, when I was talking to him, I was saying about you know f- the facilities he got. He goes, yeah, sometimes you don't realize how good you got it, and it's the same with us in motorsport. Sometimes we just we do take it for granted and you know it's it is special because there's millions of people in the world that love to be doing what we're doing yeah i think the gratitude gratitude is so important even though even though i i, I realize i'm lucky enough to you know, have a family they're able to support me while, while i do this podcast or i'm able to you know drive my car wherever i want without the risk of you know bombs flying out of the air like they are are in other countries sure, yeah. so it's, it's like it's it's, it's it's you know realizing how, how lucky you, you do have it and how good life life is regardless of yeah. the circumstance yeah. absolutely yeah absolutely especially there right now like you said so hmm. oh well, jerry thank you for your time it's, it's always a pleasure to meet someone for the first time and also it's hard to find someone that i've not spoken to or has a job that i've not probed into because i've, I've done this for a while but thank you it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure no I've, I've really enjoyed it harry and you've got some great questions and i really like your podcast it's good to keep it going mate Mindset is something that I value immensely and it's something that I've been working on for quite a while now. I got myself a coach and started working on the parts of my brain that needed fixing. And if you're struggling with mindset or just want to take it to the next level, I would 100% recommend you get one. And Jerry's take on making sure that you are operating to your best and making sure you want to stay that way is refreshing to hear. So if you think you or someone you know can take away from the episode, tag them and tag us as well in the post at the.ignition.podcast. Let them know about the episode and tell them what's in it for them. And so with that being said, I'm Harry and this is the Ignition Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.